This Wednesday will be the 50th anniversary of the first Earth Day, which was held on April 22nd, 1970. This significant anniversary is an invitation to pause and consider some of what led to the creation of Earth Day in the first place. What has happened in the years since and what hasn't and how might that inform how we go from here? Let's start with a brief glance backward at two contributing factors to the first Earth Day. And to keep it interesting, I'll uh, share a few related slides. The first major uh, influence that comes to mind is that in 1962, eight years before the first Earth Day, the biologist Rachel Carson published her book, Silent Spring, which sounded an alarm about not just pesticides, but human-created pesticides. We've already been hearing about you know, our human influence on the environment from both Nicole and Jen. Uh, a second major factor is that on December 24th, 1968, Christmas Eve, a little more than a year before the first Earth Day, an astronaut on the Apollo 8 mission took a color photograph of our planet from space. This photo, titled Earthrise, has been called the most influential environmental photograph ever taken. Our planet can seem so massive here on the Earth's surface, but suddenly we were seeing our home world from space for the first time as this tiny, beautiful blue marble floating in the infinite inky blackness of space. So 16 months after that photo of Earthrise was first published, Earth Day was held, and less than three months later, President Nixon, a Republican, proposed the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which he personally put into operation later that year through an executive order that was later um, furthered by Congress. So there was a time when a greater percentage of, of political conservatives supported conservation of the environment. This uh, brief sweep of history around the first Earth Day shows that there is reason for hope. Uh, there was reason for hope that things might have turned out differently than they have so far in the struggle for climate justice. Indeed, long before the 2016 Paris Climate Accords, which are talked about a lot these days, we can see that as far back as 1979 at the First World Climate Conference held in Geneva, Already back then in 1979, scientists from 50 nations agreed unanimously that it was, quote, urgently necessary to act. We don't actually know that much more today, like materially, that we need to act. We already knew it all in 1979. We knew enough back then. Um, four months later, at the Group of Seven meeting in Tokyo, the leaders of the world's wealthiest nations signed a statement to rescue and reduce carbon emissions. Tragically, the opposite came to pass. We can even fast forward another decade to another major climate conference, this time in Nordwick, the Netherlands, to see that in retrospect, more carbon has been released into the atmosphere since 1989, the final day of the Nordwick Climate Conference, than the entire history of civilization up to that point. We knew better, but we did not do enough.
So why are we moving in the wrong direction when we've known better for decades? One reason is what the Buddhist tradition calls the three poisons, greed, delusion, and ill will. Consider that between the year 2000 and the year 2016, the fossil fuel industry spent more than $2 billion. That's 10 times as much as was spent by environmental groups in the same time, 10 times as much to defeat climate change legislation as was spent trying to um, achieve it. So the reason that almost 90% of Americans, 90%, don't know that there ha has been, there is a scientific consistent consensus, there has been a scientific consensus since you know, 1979 or before about global warming, is that there has been a well-funded disinformation campaign to create precisely that result, that confusion. So how do we better fund the movement for climate justice? How do we fund a Green New Deal? One significant starting point would be targeting the fossil fuel companies who have thrown fuel on the fire of greed, delusion, and ill will. As the social activist Naomi Klein has written, she, by the way, will be the wear lecturer at the annual UU General Assembly this summer, which is now virtual, so you can all tune in for free from home. But uh, these are the words that Naomi Klein has written. It'll be interesting to see what she says this summer. She said that the top five oil companies made $900 billion in profit the, last, the past decade. Um, for years, these companies have pledged to use their profit to invest in a shift to renewable energy. Some of you may know that like British Petroleum, BP, uh, they've rebranded themselves beyond petroleum. That's sort of the highest profile example. But the reality is that only a small percentage of fossil fuel companies' profits have gone to alternative energy ventures. Instead, they continue to pour their profits into shareholder pockets to outrageous executive pay and new technologies designed to extract even dirtier and more dangerous fossil fuels. And plenty of money has also gone to paying lobbyists to beat back every piece of climate legislation possible and to fund the climate denial movement. Just as tobacco companies have been obliged to pay the cost of helping people quit smoking and BP has had to pay a large portion of cleanup in the Gulf of Mexico, it is high time for polluter pays principles to be applied to climate change. A Green New Deal done right would be both a massive job creator to make all the changes necessary to shift to a greener economy, and paying for that Green New Deal can help decrease the wealth gap, particularly if methods include a global minimum corporate tax to help um, extract money from transnational corporations who are tax, tax dodgers. I should perhaps hasten to be clear that in criticizing the current wealth gap, I'm by no means advocating a strict egalitarianism in which everyone has the same amount. But what I am criticizing is our current toleration of a tiny few having way too many resources and many more people not even having the bare minimum to live with dignity. I'm also saying that it is unconscionable to allow a tiny percentage of people to hoard resources, enormous wealth, when that money could help save this one beautiful, irreplaceable planet that we call home. Let me show you a few more examples that help put all of that in context. 
in the indigenous Cree tradition, there is a saying about storing up wealth at the expense of the environment, that when the last tree has been cut down and the last fish caught and the last river poisoned, only then will some realize that you cannot eat money. Or to flip the perspective, the Uruguayan writer Eduardo Galeano once said that if nature was a bank, we would have already rescued it. That being said, you've heard some, again, from Nicole and Jen, that we're seeing some fairly interesting glimpses um, of what happens when our human activity changes. Smog has plagued the city of Los Angeles on our West Coast for years, but in the wake of California's stay-at-home order, LA is currently experiencing the longest stretch of clean air since 1980, when the EPA first started keeping regular track of LA's air pollution. That's before the stay-at-home order, and after the stay-at-home order. Here's another photo of LA from about a week ago. Here's a photo of New Delhi, India, 2019, today, after 21 days of the stay-at-home order. In some places, India's air quality has improved so much since that country went on coronavirus lockdown that there are citizens seeing the Himalayas, also sometimes called the Himalayas, for the first time in three decades. You can see the same thing in Wuhan, China. You can see this graphic of NASA on the left showing highly problematic air pollution that has now had significant decreases since um, the stay-at-home orders. Reflecting on these slides um, reminded me of a poem titled Lockdown. It was written by a Franciscan friar in Ireland. It made the rounds on the internet a few weeks ago, but we uh, haven't shared it yet in our Sunday service. I want to invite you to hear just an excerpt, the whole, although the whole poem is worth reading in full. He writes, yes, there is fear. Yes, there is isolation. Yes, there is panic buying. Yes, there is sickness. Yes, there is even death. But they say that in Wuhan, after so many years of noise, you can hear the birds again. They say that after just a few weeks of quiet, the sky is no longer thick with fumes, but blue and gray and clear. They say that in the streets of Assisi, people are singing to each other across the empty squares, keeping their windows open so that those who are alone may hear the sound of family around them. They say that at a hotel in the west of Ireland, they are offering free meals and deliveries to the housebound. Wake to the choices you make as to how to live now, today. As Nicole invited us earlier, today, breathe. Listen behind the factory noises of your panic. The birds are singing again. The sky is clearing. Spring is here. And we are always encompassed by love. Open the windows of your soul. And though you may not be able to touch across an empty square, sing. Are we awake to the choices we have to make as to how to live now? If so, how will we choose to live? As the cultural commentator Steve Behrman has put it, 
there is good news and bad news. The bad news is that civilization as we know it is about to end. Now the good news. Civilization as we know it is about to end. It was unsustainable all along, and there is always opportunity in crisis. For discerning a potential path forward, I'd like to begin to work my way to my conclusion by saying just a little more about what I mentioned earlier, that one explanation for why we've been moving in the wrong direction for decades regarding climate change, despite knowing better, is what the Buddhist tradition calls the three poisons, sometimes called the three kleshas. The Buddhist tradition, you hear a lot about, you know, Buddha came to teach the end of suffering, or that word dukkha is better translated as unsatisfactoriness. So the three poisons that keep us from um, achieving that are greed, delusion, and ill will. So greed, notice that word attachment. So being overly drawn toward things, overly craving, unduly, unreasonably. Um, delusion overly lost, sort of in between attachment and aversion, so being too much compelled to something or too much repelled from something, delusion is kind of being lost in the middle. It's, it's feeling separate against the truth of our deep interdependence. And is our pandemic teaching us anything right now except how truly interdependent we all are? We can also do um, kind of an ecological thing. What if we talk about not just our personal dukkha, our personal wrestling with unsatisfactoriness, but let's move that to the systemic, the institutionalized level, what causes um, institutionalized unsatisfactoriness. So we can look at the ways that greed shows up, not just for us personally, but corporately and um, saying we're get what's called an externality. We're not going to put the environment on our balance sheets, right? The consequences of that. So short-term profits, um, vastly craving that, intentionally spreading disinformation, not misinformation, but disinformation, false information intended to mislead, to create confusion and ignorance about the true scientific consensus about climate change. And ill will, only caring about yourself and a small number of others, having an aversion to the vast swath of humanity instead of contributing what you can to the freedom, the liberation, the well-being of all sentient beings. So what are the antidotes to that? How do we remedy that? What might we do differently? The Buddhist tradition lists three antidotes, wholesome mental factors. So instead of craving, having just sort of non-attachment, I think of this as just like an open palm instead of this grasping. Uh, so non-attachment, generosity. When Bonte, the Buddhist monk, was here, he talked about dana, right? Just give to me if you're able. I'm not going to charge you anything, but give to me out of abundance if you have it. Non-delusion, or what is called wisdom. What is needed in this moment? Truly needed, deeply needed. And non-aversion. So instead of being averse to other people, loving kindness. So if you know that word, metta. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you live with an open heart. These practices of generosity, of wisdom, of loving kindness, they are essential for individual and collective awakening, enlightenment, liberation. I'll add just one more layer 
onto this, which is how we're trying to do all this at UUCF, right? We're not just individuals. So in the same way we can take that sort of Buddhist tradition of individual wrestling with suffering and look at how that shows up corporately and in institutions, we can do the same thing with how we're trying to build an institution based on these antidotes. So we can look at the ways that we're trying to combat delusion with wisdom by encouraging spiritual growth. We're trying to counter ill will by cultivating loving kindness, building a beloved community. Uh, you know, what, what um, Cornel West some, says sometimes, right, that justice is what love looks like in public, right? So building a community around that and instead of greed, generosity, acting for peace and justice. And since this is, uh, since the eight day festival of Passover recently ended, allow me to also weave in just one more related piece of wisdom this time from the Jewish tradition. One of the most famous passages of the Mishnah, a collection from the Jewish oral tradition, advises that whenever we're feeling daunted by the enormity of the world's grief, and by all means, climate change can cause us to feel that. The suggested rem remedy is to focus on just don't worry about solving it all at once, but what is the next right action within our spheres of influence? The Mishnah says, act justly now love mercy now walk humbly now it concludes it is not your responsibility to finish the work of healing the world but neither are you free to desist from it you do not have to solve this global systemic problem alone we are stronger together Specifically, when you are feeling discouraged about the movement for climate justice, I recommend that you take just a little time to check in with what the Sunrise Movement is doing. An increasing number, uh, as we heard a few weeks ago, uh, we have a Frederick-based group here that often meets at UUCF involving a number of members of our UUCF youth group. This youth-led movement for climate justice is a consistent source of inspiration, of fierce advocacy, of persistent and consistent hope. I'll show you just one more slide of that. So if you haven't spent much time, I encourage you to check out the Sunrise Movement, check out their advocacy for a Green New Deal. An increasing number of young people are awakening to the fact that they can't yet vote, but they will be stuck with the consequences of adult inaction. So you are by all means Google the Sunrise Movement um, later. At last year's first ever, ever global school strike for climate, protest signs read, there is no planet B. They read, don't burn our future. They read, the house is on fire. That last part is quoting the 17-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg, who has said, I don't want your hope. I want you to panic. 
I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And she's saying this now as a 17 year old, but started saying it earlier. She says, I want you to act. I want you to act as you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house is on fire because it is. So we've seen in those pictures how we can start to put out the flames if we change our behavior. I was heartened to learn this past week that the city of Frederick's aldermen voted five to zero to establish a climate um, emergency mobilization work group. There's also work and conversations in Frederick County to do likewise, though there needs, we need pressure there in Frederick County to pass that Climate Emergency Act. We'll get you more information as that comes back. I hope again that uh, Frederick County and other municipalities that Frederick uh, UCF members and beyond are involved with will follow suit. As Unitarian Universalists facing our planet's climate emergency, may we have wisdom in the work of climate justice as we seek to encourage spiritual growth. May we bring loving kindness for building a beloved community. May we bring generosity in our actions for peace and justice, actions that seek to benefit not merely ourselves, not merely those closest to us, but this planet as a whole and all sentient beings. Continue to think on these things and how you feel led to act in the coming day and weeks and months as we listen together to that beautiful hymn, Blue Boat Home. You're invited to sing along at home.